of Acts chapter 10. You probably watched the news this week. Hope no one jumps up on stage with horns and a raccoon tail. As we, as we observe the world seeming to fragment around us and the very foundations of some of our most important institutions uh, show cracks in them, we're kind of left as believers asking, well, Lord, you knew all this was going to come. You, all, you knew we would live in such a time as this. What's the plan? What's, what's the plan? What, what should we be about? And honestly, last week, our message in Acts 10 saw God's great grand purposes for changing the world often come down to a simple meal, to the simple act of hospitality, to the simple spreading of the gospel, one dinner, lunch, breakfast, and cup of coffee at a time. That, that's an amazing reality, and it's historically uh, absolutely factual and true. That is, in addition to a few other means, a primary means of grace that God has used for centuries to bring people out of the kingdom of darkness and into the kingdom of light. Dinners, casseroles. Like, that's God's great plan, casseroles. Amen. I am all on board with that great plan. And today's message is also in Acts chapter 10. And this message is, is very, I think this is an interesting question. Uh, I hope you think it's an interesting question. And that is, okay, who should we invite over for dinner? <laughs> Here's the idea. We saw last week that the law is restrictive. And so the covenant under the law is a taste not and touch not kind of deal. There's a defensiveness and a restriction associated with that former way of life. But now we have been redeemed into the covenant of grace. And so now we actually have everything that Christ has. We've been talking a fair amount over the last few months about this idea that we are, the church is, the bride of Christ. And one of the points made last week was that Jesus is our husband and he doesn't keep a separate checking account. All that is his is ours. And uh, we, we looked at a number of verses which just tell us that very thing. Because Christ is ours, all that Christ has is ours in him. So now we're not really playing defense anymore. He has bought the whole world with his blood. All things now, Paul say, are permissible, but not everything is beneficial. Here's where we are. We're wealthy people who need to learn discernment because we have so many great options and choices. We've got to sort out which ones we'll say yes to and which ones we'll say no to. That's where we are. We're wealthy people who are called to learn discernment because all things are ours. But Paul says, for instance, everything under this covenant is permissible, but not everything is beneficial. This idea goes all the way down to the company we keep. Who should we spend our time with? Who should we invite over for dinner? Now, we could see the Bible saying very clearly, and in this story of Peter very clearly, that 
the Bible says that, in, this is in Galatians 6, that we should do good to everyone, but especially those of the household of faith. Peter, earlier in chapter 9, is really t- making his life about visiting and caring for people that are in the church. And the momentum of that ministry leads him to this moment where he has an opportunity to go and sit with a man named Cornelius and share the gospel with him, a man outside the church. This question of, okay, so who should we invite to dinner? There's lots of people that you work with that don't know Christ. Which one of those people should you invite to dinner? There are lots of people in your neighborhood that don't know Jesus. Does the Bible give us any indication which of those people we ought to pursue first? Well, I think our story in Acts chapter 10 gives us that, helps us discern. We have unlimited options. Which one do we choose? Who do we invite for dinner? Look, look at verse 34 and 35. Cornelius is speaking, or Peter is speaking to Cornelius here. Acts chapter 10, verse 34 through 35. So Peter opened his mouth and said, Truly I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. So our first point of the message is a seeming dichotomy or contradiction that appears in verses 34 and 35, and that dichotomy or contradiction appears to be this. God shows no partiality. Also, God shows partiality. Right? Verse 34, truly I understand that God shows no partiality. Verse 35, but in every nation, anyone who fears him does what is, and does what is right is acceptable to him. You picking up what I'm, what I'm laying down? Uh, God shows no partiality except he only accepts those who fear him and do what is right. So what's, what is Peter talking about first when he says God shows no partiality? Well, the the hint is in the second verse where he says, in every nation. Peter's reference to God not showing partiality is applied specifically to the question of ethnicity. God shows no ethnic partiality. You know, as we work our way through the Gospels, we learn three important lessons that seem to us to be not surprising, but were revolutionary at the time, and that is this. God shows no ethnic partiality. And people were astonished at this. But there's a second kind of partiality we see wiped away in the Gospels. God shows no economic partiality. He is neither for the poor or for the rich in any particular way. He saves all of them. He, he, he interacts with all of them. Uh, th- this is an important thing that we maybe don't believe or understand. That God shows no ethnic partiality. This story in Acts chapter 10, he's visiting a man of substantial means this man of substantial means is the first one chosen to hear the gospel from among the gentiles so god shows no ethnic partiality god shows no economic partiality and then we also see that god shows no gender partiality we see jesus interacting my 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 uh, godly feministy daughter is just like yes uh no uh no uh, God shows no gender partiality. Like We see Jesus taking women seriously. The very first witnesses of the resurrection were a group of women. Now these three things, God shows no ethnic partiality, God shows no economic partiality, God shows no gender partiality. These things were revolutionary. 
And the fact that maybe they aren't so revolutionary to us means that over time, the Word of God has seeped into our cultural assumptions to a great degree and have actually affected the way we think about things. So when Peter says God shows no partiality, that's what he's talking about. But he's saying on the same, in the same line, in the same verse, same section, but in every nation who fears him and does what is acceptable to him. So God shows no ethnic, economic, or gender partiality, but he seems to show a moral partiality toward those who fear him and do what is right. Now that is an uneasy statement. That feels counterintuitive to suggest that God shows partiality to those who are without Christ but exhibit some fear of the Lord and some attempt to do what is right. That is a profound statement. That, that's, really, that's really the thing, I think, that leaves us astonished as we consider it. And this is how we're going to answer this question. Who should I invite to dinner? This sense of, God does indeed, in his redemptive purposes, prioritize a certain group of people in a certain state of mind or a certain state of heart. And we should, as his followers, be looking out into the world to see those who have been put through common grace in a position like Cornelius. They don't know Christ. But there's something going on there. I, I, I suspect that you could think of someone that you know it's in, it's in this category. They don't know Christ, but there's something going on there. Well, let's, let's think about that. Let's think about, well, what's going on there? Now, I said this is an uneasy statement, but it is absolutely, I'm not convoluting this. This is actually the point of this passage in Acts 10.35 and uh, 10.3-5. An angel appears to Cornelius and he says, your prayers and your alms have ascended as a memorial before God. Now send men to Joppa and bring one Simon who is called Peter. In verses 30 and 32, Cornelius is recounting the story to Peter and he says, um, a holy angel was, was, came and said uh, that you are, uh, I'm remembering, God has remembered your gifts to the poor. In verse 22, when Cornelius' household is dispatched, members of his household are dispatched to Peter, they greet Peter and they say, Cornelius and Centurion, an upright and God-fearing man who was well spoken of by the whole Jewish nation. So, so this idea that Cornelius' pre-conversion morality is at work is kind of indisputable. This is a factor. Now, we've got to make sense of this and figure out why it's a factor and what it means and what it doesn't mean. But we, we can't get past this idea that's demonstrated pretty clearly in chapter 10 that somehow Cornelius's God-fearingness, his attempt to live a just life, in some ways positioned him at the front of the line to receive the gospel message. Well, that's just, doesn't that, are you getting a little heresy alarms right now? Like, like this, is, this is a very difficult and thorny subject to, to, to process. So, so, again, point two, so who should I invite to dinner first? Well, let me, let me say this. It seems 
based on a pattern that I hope to demonstrate this morning, that we should look for those in our workplace, in our families, in our neighborhoods, who show some fear of God and who are attempting in some way, however misguided, to live an upright life. Those individuals should be our first priority. Now, this is, this is a really hard pill to swallow. This is not what we've been conditioned to believe, and I want to address some misconceptions that cause this statement to be difficult to process. And the first one is this. We are very apt, as all people have always been apt, to consider morality to be the same as salvation. So we are apt to overlook people who don't know Christ, yet who are moral. We're apt to label them as having Christ when they indeed do not have Christ. There are plenty of people in the world whom we would be tempted to call Christians who have not been born again of the Spirit of God. Cornelius, let's think of it this way, Cornelius would fit in any one of our many churches who use morality as a measurement and not the love of Christ. Cornelius would fly under the radar as someone who needed the gospel if he were attending a great number of churches in our country. So one of the reasons this is all kind of weird to us is that we've got this, this over-generalization over of looking at someone who has some fear of God and some attempt to live an upright life and say, well, that person's a Christian. Well, no, that's, Cornelius is not a Christian. He needs to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. So, so one of the reasons this is all a little confusing to us is we're, we're just prone to lump people in to the Christian herd who are not themselves members of Christ. There's another factor at work here that makes all of this feel weird to us, and that is we've been conditioned to a kind of evangelistic romanticism that thinks that the worst are the ones with all the good stories to tell and the real trophies of God's grace. Now, you might be thinking, if you know your Bible well, you might be thinking, Ephesians 2, he came and preached peace to those who were near and to those who were far off. If you look at that passage... See, it's talking specifically about Jews and Gentiles. Cornelius is far off in, this, in that sense. We've been conditioned to do something or to think along the lines of something that William Booth, who's the founder of Salvation Army, said. And he said, go straight for souls and go for the worst. Now, William Booth had an individual call from the Lord, and like many ministry leaders, they tend to overextrapolate their highly specific individual call from the Lord as normative for all other Christians across all time. But I don't believe that's what the Bible teaches. I don't believe the Bible teaches go for the worst. I don't believe the Bible teaches ignore them. But we're asking a very direct, pointed question. Who should I invite to dinner first? And I think the answer is, is that we look for the people who have Cornelius-like features yet do not know Christ. And I think there's a whole body of Scripture that seems to point in this particular direction. For instance, let me ask just a series of questions. Why did John the Baptist come before Jesus preaching a message of general repentance? 
why was it important to God that people generally repent before they hear the gospel of the kingdom? Why did Jesus, when he sent out his disciples, tell them to go into villages looking for a so-called man of peace and to do all of their ministry in that village through this man's home? Why were the Bereans in Acts considered more noble in their response to the preaching of Paul because they examined the scriptures to see if what he was saying was true? The Bereans were not saved. But they were considered more noble because of their approach to the Word of God. So, so now, mind you, all of these examples are talking about pre-converted people. The audience of John the Baptist had not yet met the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. The man of peace in the village had not yet heard the gospel of the kingdom. The Bereans were not yet Christians. We tend to think of these people as already converted, but that's not true. As we look at the progression of the gospel into the world, it often stops first in someone's home like a man like Cornelius. Here's another question. Why was the law necessary at all? Why not just go right, jump right into the gospel? Why have thousands of years of God's people under the law? If the law had no power to save, then what was its purpose? So one more question, kind of in the negative We know that the book of Proverbs tells us to have nothing to do with a fool. What does that have to do with what I'm talking about now? There's there's actually a fair degree of relational selectivity and discrimination taught in the Bible across all books, across all covenants. And that's this idea of relational discernment. Not because they have cooties. No, no. Not because they're icky, but because God is not at work equally in all lives. And we, as followers of God, want to, as Henry Blackaby said years ago, revolutionize the Southern Baptist world, uh, find out where God is working and join him there. And so why, who, who are you going to invite to dinner? It's kind of this, this, this basic like fork in the road for yourself. You could invite those that you find interesting. You could invite those you find especially scandalous and so that you can say, we had a, you know, a prostitute to dinner tonight. You, know, you, you, could, you, could, you, could, you could invite those who you think are going to bring the best side dish. You, there's all sorts of uh, questions, like possible reasons. It's like, why would you invite this person to dinner? But here's an alternative. Wouldn't you rather say, I'm going to invite the person to dinner who seems to be in some way or another being drawn by God? I see God at work in their life. Though they are not yet redeemed, I identify evidences of his common grace which are likely or potentially going to lead to them being open to hearing the gospel and considering it. That would be what I'm mainly pointing to this morning. Asking the question of who should I invite to dinner is a really important one because it assumes I should invite someone to dinner. And it assumes I should invite someone who doesn't know to Jesus to dinner. And the question is like, well, who? And the answer is, well, look at who God is doing work in their life. Like, look look for evidence of God's pre-converting common grace. Now, let's look at this verse a third time again. So Peter opened his mouth and said, Truly I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation... 
Anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. So at first blush, you could conclude that Cornelius' works have earned him an opportunity to hear the gospel. At first blush, all of us reformed people who give God 100% credit for all the work of salvation are run up against this moment where we're saying, but wait a minute, is it possible to earn a hearing? Is it possible to earn the gospel's proclamation? No, no, and no. This is all of God. As we saw two weeks ago, all of this is evidence that God is at work in Cornelius' life. Cornelius was a member of something called the Italian cohort. And he became, as he was stationed in Israel, an advocate, an adherent of the Jewish religion. And it's through his, his adherence to the Old Testament law that he recognizes his, his, uh, the, the need to fear the Lord. And he recognizes the need to pray regularly. And he recognizes the need to give to the poor. And here's the simple point. What if uh, in God's providence... Cornelius wasn't stationed in Israel and he had no contact with Judaism whatsoever, but he was stationed in Britain or Spain. Well, he's not a devout man at this point, right? He's, he's, not, he's not exposed to what Paul says in Romans 3 are the oracles of God. So where Cornelius is in this moment is nothing to boast in. He didn't get himself there. God brought him to this point, and that's exactly what we're suggesting. Look for the people that God is moving closer to himself. In John chapter 4, Jesus says to the disciples, I tell you, lift up your eyes. See that the fields are white for harvest. And he's talking there about unconverted people. And he says, look, lift up your eyes and see. In other words, there seems to be some visible evidence that a person, a people, are being made ready to receive the gospel. He's saying you could look at this field full of people and tell they are ready to be harvested. And that's the sensibility, the sense of discernment we're trying to evoke today. The capacity to look at a person or a people and say, that person or that people is ripe right now. And I can see it. It's visible. It's evident. God has made it plain to me because I know where to look. And where do I look? I look to the things described of Cornelius. I ask, is there any sense of the fear of the Lord present in this particular field? Is there any sense of an obligation to absolute truth present in this field? Is there any Berean vibes happening here. And I look there and I say, yeah, now those wheat stalks have a particular bend to them. Not based on their ethnicity or their economic or their gender, but simply based on what God is already doing in their lives. C.S. Lewis is a great example of this. Before C.S. Lewis could become a Christian, he had to have what he called his first conversion. Now, this is scandalous language. What was his first conversion? Well, his first conversion was to was from ornery, middle finger to heaven atheism to theism. And this is where when he just says uh, he was on the back of a motorcycle, I think, headed to or from the zoo, if I remember correctly. 
and he called himself the most reluctant convert in England. Now, he was not at that time a convert to Christianity, but he had allowed the force of God's common grace testimony to break through the dam of his unbelief to the point where he had to acknowledge there is a God. This is stage one for Mr. Lewis. And then stage two comes after that. His friends, including Tolkien, recognize this dam has burst forth and now the stubborn atheist is a softer-hearted, confused, wandering theist. How did he get there? God got him there. And Tolkien and his friends recognize this, and they spend the night with him proclaiming and explaining that Jesus is the true myth. And now his second conversion, his real conversion, takes place. Think of it this way. The Bible describes salvation as a birth experience. Someone who is God's has been born again into newness of life. But well before they're born, we're probably seeing a little baby bump. There's a gestational process at work that brings someone to the point of being ready to be saved. There's a, there's a maturation, if we're thinking about crops, there's a maturation process. They take in X amount of sun and water, and over time, the harvest becomes ready. And we can learn to recognize this and act with discernment about who we pursue first. So, let's go into the super practicalities of this. I always want to say expialidocious. Uh, uh, the super, and I say super practicalities almost as a warning. Because here is my attempt to take what is, seems to be the clear teaching of Scripture and, and reconcile or harmonize that with our situations and say, this is, I think, hyper-clear application, but this is what I think. Uh, I think I'm rooting this in the Bible. You decide for yourself. Romans 1.16 For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Now here's this ordering again for the Jew first and also the Greek. Why the Jew and then the Greek? Paul was a minister. We saw this earlier in Acts 9. Paul was a minister of the Gentiles. He was called to be an instrument to redeem the Gentiles. Why did he almost always go to the synagogue first? Because Paul teaches explicitly in Romans and Galatians and elsewhere that the law does a pre-converting gestational work on a human heart. It sensitizes the conscience and the soul to the bigness and holiness of God, the sinfulness of, God, of sin, the sinfulness of the individual, and so on and so forth. So in, in Romans 3, I was talking to Jay about this, in Romans 3, at the beginning of Romans 3, uh, Paul says, what advantage is there to being a Jew? And he says, uh, much in every way, to begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God, meaning they have had years of soul-sensitizing work done by the law of God and understand something more than the average Gentile Joe on the street about the righteous requirements of God. So what does that look like practically? Again, who should we have for dinner? Point number one of this 
hyper-practical application, you should have your kids to dinner. Everything, and I, I, I invite, I think that parenting is light on theory and heavy on practicalities. I think not many people get the theory. And men, I think this is our job as fathers, understand the theory, understand the big picture. The implementation is, is always going to be a question of preference and, and child personality and so on. But what's the big picture? What's the big story? What is parenting? What are we supposed to be doing as Christian parenting? I actually just described all of the basic rhythms of Christian parenting in the, in the message up to this point. What I just described is what we're doing. We are trying to produce Corneliuses. That's what we're trying to do. We're trying, we, we can't save our kids, but we can raise them in the fear and admonition of the Lord. Friends, your kids are your number one mission field. Your kids are really, in many respects, our number one mission field. We are into generational growth at this church. We're thinking about a long obedience in the same direction. So many of the people that you see up here leading worship are kids of the people who planted this church. We're, we're pursuing a particular vision for an extended period of time in which we see generation after generation being handed down the truth of the gospel. But here's the key, and this is so essential, I can't save my kids. You can't save your kids. All we can do is position them through wise parenting, through the wise use of God's law, position them to be sensitive to the requirements of God, position them to be sensitive to their own sinfulness and need for grace. The biggest mistake you could make is to abandon the law in your parenting I hope you'll soak that in. It's so countercultural. Say it again. The biggest mistake you could make is to abandon God's law in your parenting. To make them think that their desires are ultimate. To make them strangers to the concept of sin. You absolutely should model grace. But don't forget, in order for grace to be understood, there has to be a knowledge of sin. Don't let your children become self-indulgent, affixed to their own sense of justice, persuaded that their own impressions of right and wrong are the same as right and wrong. Parent your children with the Ten Commandments while also letting them taste and see that the Lord is good. There's a, there's a book by a guy named Donald Van Dyken. So you can tell he's like a Dutch Calvinist probably, right? Donald Van Dyken. And, and, and he wrote this book called Rediscovering Catechism. And here's, this, is worth, this is worth your time. It is true that we cannot make believers of our children, and it's good to be reminded that we are but men and that the blessing of God and the power of the Holy Spirit alone change our hearts and lives. That should keep us humble and prayerful. However, if we know the Apostle Paul, we will be convinced that he spared no amount of laboring and striving, preaching and teaching, pleading and argument, if by any means he might save some. An analogy from farming will clarify the point. When we walk in the field, we confess that the Spirit alone gives life to our corn crop. But the Holy Spirit has been pleased to bind himself to means. We do not get 180 bushels of corn to the acre by pulling out a lawn chair. Instead, we pray and plow, disc, fertilize, plant, irrigate, spray, and cultivate. Ora et labora, Latin for pray and work. 
So who should you invite for dinner? First and foremost, have dinner with your kids. And, and, and give them the law and the gospel over and over and over again. Okay, now your kids are here. You're, you've had your kids over for dinner. Who else? <laughs> right? Well, in addition, let's, let's leave them at the table. Now let's ask, who should I invite that I know in my workplace, in my neighborhood? Who should I invite that I know? And here's the idea. Be on the lookout for reason, commitment to truth, love of truth, beauty and goodness that is potentially full of error and misguided. One of my favorite moments in, uh, in, in this passage that shows Cornelius certainly was not saved. He, uh, Peter arrives at his household and Cornelius tries to worship him. Like Cornelius has still got plenty of pagan going on, you know? Like he's not, he's, he's got a long way to go. So his fear of the Lord is, is, is actually not really uh, targeted or focused well. He's, he's just got some general things going on. He need, all that needs to be clarified for him. He needs to be converted. So who should you invite to dinner besides your kids? Look for people who are showing signs of humility, the fear of the Lord. Drop little comments about God or prayer and see if they hiss or if they purr. If they're still hissing, it might not yet be time. Pray for them to stop hissing. I think there are a lot of Corneliuses in our world. I just don't think they get a lot of attention. And they don't make a lot of noise. And honestly, like the cool kids in evangelicalism don't think they're worth much. Because they're just dopey moralists and nationalists, right? Yeah, except right now. Right now. There's a whole population of people who believe in truth, but thought that, and, and, and believe in like rightness. And all of their earthly schemes to achieve that have just crumbled before their eyes and are, and are crumbling before their eyes. And all of their false gods of, of politicians and Supreme Court justices and honestly talk show hosts. God has this year. God has this year done a work to say to those people, put not your trust in chariots or horses. And I'm telling you, the whole momentum of evangelical culture is to not even look at these people. Partly because they're not cool. And partly because they don't check off our evangelistic romanticism. But I'm telling you this, there are a great number of Corneliuses in this country right now who, through God's common grace, have had their hearts more prepared than we realize for a sense of the fear of the Lord, a sense of truth has to be truth. We can't keep giving up the truth over and over again. People are frustrated. They're frightened. They're uncertain of what comes next. And here's what we say to them. Like Paul said in Acts 17, right now you're worshiping a God that doesn't exist. And you can expect perennial frustration as long as you do. But the things you're looking for, the values that you know must be out there and must be true, they are found in one named Christ Jesus. And I want to invite you to find the true root of true liberty. I want to invite you to find the true root of truth. I want to invite you to find the fountain of truth, beauty, and goodness. 
you've gone far long enough worshiping means. Now let's turn our attention to the one who made you and your life possible. In verse 43 of Acts 10, Peter is eventually, in verse 44, he's interrupted by the Holy Spirit. That was kind of lame. But uh, in verse 43, he's giving his impressive gospel proclamation. And this is what he says. He says, he says that Jesus, through Jesus, we can have forgiveness of sins. And you know what Cornelius, because of what God had been doing in his life, you know what Cornelius didn't have to ask? What sins? Because God had already been working in his life, when Peter says, Jesus brings the forgiveness of sins, that's all he needs to say. And the next verse is, the Holy Spirit fell upon them and they were saved. Why, why was Cornelius there? Because he was smart? Because he was moral? Because he had a, a, an NRA card? No, Cornelius was there because God put him there. Right now, this idea that God chose the foolish things of this world to confound the wise puts me, points me, to a particular group of unredeemed deplorables to people who have some sense that there must be truth, some sense that killing babies is probably not okay, some sense that laws are meant to be obeyed, and yet, all of that, they're going to go to hell unless they have Jesus. So if I'm looking out and I'm not asking, who's the most interesting person to invite to dinner? Who, who can I post on Facebook to show I'm racially inclusive? You know, who, who can I invite, you know, like forget all that and just ask, where is God at work? And I would probably look to someone who has some sense of the fear of the Lord and is trying in, in, a, in a kind of pathetic, Christless way to make their way in this world doing good. And I would invite that person to meet my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. That's who I would invite to dinner. Let me pray for us.